my family and I have been a member of this church since um, 2009, so it's been several years now. And I'm also a member of the Women of the Word Life Group, and I'd like to pause for a commercial break here. If you are a woman of any age or any marital status, if you would like to join our group, we meet in room 201 during the 1030 hour, and we would love to have you. This morning, I'm going to be reading from the ESV version of the Bible, Luke chapter 23. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 5 and then 13 through 25. And while you turn there, I have to tell you that verse 1 is a continuation from Luke 22. So it's going to begin with two pronouns, them and him. So them is referring to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the Jewish council. And him, of course, is referring to Jesus. And they're taking him to Pilate, who is the governor of Judea at the time. And he was more interested in his political career than actual justice. So please follow along with me. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of reading your word together. Open our hearts and minds to what you'd have us learn today. Be with Andrew as he delivers this morning's message, that his words flow from you. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you, Becky, for reading our gospel text for this morning. You're already there, hopefully. And now in Luke chapter 23, that is where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. We're continuing our 
series on the people that we see, some of the people we see surrounding the cross. And this morning, our focus turns to the sentencer. Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor or a prefect placed over the Roman province of Judea. Historically speaking, we don't know a whole lot about him other than what we find about him in the Gospels, at least in terms of his background before he became governor. There are very few historical mentions from the first century about him, but nothing really extensive. And so we know that he served in this role as governor, though, for about 10 years. And as he held that office, his primary residence would have been in the city of Caesarea. He would, however, make sure to be present in Jerusalem during major feasts like the Passover, not because he was interested in the religious significance of the festivals, but because it's best practice when you're running an empire to prevent any uprisings or at least be nearby to squelch them quickly if they occur. And large gatherings of people are a good place for those kinds of things to start. And so that's where our passage picks up this morning. So far, we've looked at Judas, the betrayer, who turned Jesus over to the authorities, and then at Peter, the denier, who went against his own declarations by insisting that he knew nothing about this very same Jesus who he had just sworn he would die for. And so Jesus found himself before the council of chief priests and scribes in a trial that Jesus rightly discerned to be a farce. As Luke 22 comes to a close, we see Jesus refusing to play along with their charade, actually indicting them instead of the other way around. Jesus' position, you see, was essentially that they'd already made up their minds, and it really didn't matter what he said, which they proved by twisting his words to fit the accusations they made against him. The truth was that they already had all the evidence that they needed to bring the charges they were going to bring against Jesus. And so they took him before Pilate, who was the one with the authority to execute, quite literally, their plan. And they just start going down their list of charges. This man was misleading our nation. This man was telling people not to give tribute to Caesar. This man, he claims to be the Messiah. He thinks he's a king. And each of those charges was tailored to an audience of one, to Pilate himself. They're asking, essentially, Pilate, aren't you worried about this man leading people to rebel against Rome and against you? Pilate, how's it going to look to Caesar when you aren't collecting enough taxes and you had a chance to nip this whole thing in the bud? Never mind that Jesus had explicitly taught the opposite of what they were charging him to teach. Pilate, look, we recognize your power and authority under Caesar, they're saying. So we figured you would want to know that this guy, Jesus, he's saying he's king. Each of their charges against Jesus were framed as crimes against Pilate, as threats to his power, as appeals to his pride. It's really a pretty good strategy that they came up with, which is why they had to be a little thrown, I would think, when Pilate's initial response moves right past their first two charges And he just asked Jesus simply, are you the king of the Jews? To which Jesus responds just as he did before the council saying, you've said so. It's not a direct affirmation, nor is it a denial. Instead, it reiterates Jesus' belief that this was all past the point where facts were going to make any difference at all. And it places the burden back on Pilate to make a judgment and a decision. The chief priests heard Jesus' responses and thought, That's all we need to hear to move forward. Let's take this man before Pilate. But Pilate heard Jesus' response, and he says to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And so at this point, Jesus' accusers were told were urgent. Verse 5 is that point where maybe you have 
told uh, some kind of uh, lie or you've kind of tried to frame things in a little bit of a deceptive way and you realize that the person you're telling the story to is seeing through your deception and so you have a decision to make. You can either kind of take the loss and go home, which doesn't seem like a great option when you're failing in a bid to get a man crucified, or you can double down in that moment on your lie, which is what the chief priests in the crowd do here. Give them credit for this. They weren't distracted from their message. They said, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee, even to this place. Pilate, they were saying, this man, he's a problem for you. But that wasn't Pilate's takeaway. He, even in that appeal, heard them say the word Galilee, and he saw an opportunity because if Jesus was from Galilee, which he was, then that meant he would be under Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod also happened to be in Jerusalem at this time. And so maybe it's good to get his thoughts on the matter. It's always good, isn't it, to seek advice from others, to seek counsel from others before we proceed with a decision. And so Pilate sent Jesus to Herod, at the very least buying him some more time to figure out how to handle this situation. And what played out before Herod was a lot like what happened before the council and before Pilate. Jesus wasn't engaging in their sham of a trial. And even though Herod mocked him by dressing him up like a king, he ultimately sends him back to Pilate without any punishment or sentence, bolstering Pilate's position. And that is how Herod and Pilate, were told, became friends, which is the one maybe nice thing that happens in this otherwise terrible account. And so back at Pilate's place, he calls everyone together to make another pronouncement, one which feels like a final decision, a final verdict. He lays it out plainly. He says, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. He goes on to point out, Herod didn't find anything wrong with him either. Jesus doesn't deserve to die. That was Pilate's verdict. He promises to punish him, presumably for some lesser crimes, or maybe just to try to appease the chief priests in the crowds, and then to release him. And so as we pause just right there for a moment, I think what we see about Pilate in this account is this, that Pilate saw with clarity, but behaved with cowardice. Just look at what we've already seen, what we've already heard from him in this account. Some people believe Pilate to be an especially ruthless ruler, others thinking to be a mostly competent man, just kind of a person of his times. But whatever else we know about Pilate from other sources, Luke is careful here to show us that Pilate saw this situation quite clearly. He didn't get sucked in by all the arguments of the chief priests in the crowds. He listened to the accusations they made. He engaged with them. He questioned Jesus. He showed he understood what they were saying. He examined the facts. He even got another opinion on the case. This wasn't a situation where Pilate was tricked or deceived by the crowd that was clamoring for Jesus' crucifixion. That would have been a different situation here. Pilate saw the circumstances before him with clarity. And initially, he shows some courage in this situation, speaking truth to those who wanted Jesus dead. If this story ended at verse 16, then we might even celebrate Pilate's clear-eyed judgment in the face of this angry mob, but it doesn't, and so we don't. Upon the announcement of Pilate's verdict, everyone, the chief priests, rulers, and the mob they had assembled, they start crying out, demanding that Jesus be taken away or done away with, and that Barabbas be released instead, a man who was actually guilty of the crime of insurrection with which they charged Jesus, and also murder. 
Luke doesn't mention it here, but Matthew and Mark tell us that this was a custom for the authorities to release a prisoner during the Passover festival. It was the people's choice. It was up to them. They picked someone, and Pilate would release them in an attempt to build some goodwill and favor with the people. Right? Maybe this will get them thinking, you know what, that Pilate, he isn't so bad after all. And so that custom is what we see playing out here, and the dynamic that underlies it is what is written all over what happens here with Pilate and Jesus. Pilate spoke again. He tells them again that he thought Jesus should be released, but the people knew. They knew that wasn't the deal. They got to choose who would be released. They knew it, and Pilate knew better than to go back on that deal now. And so they just kept shouting and shouting, crucify, crucify him. Pilate tried a third time to reason with them to pronounce his verdict, but the facts hadn't changed. His position hadn't changed. Jesus had still done nothing deserving of death. Pilate saw this case with clarity. But he also heard loud and clear the crowds continuing to demand Jesus' crucifixion and Barabbas' release. Pilate heard the evidence clearly, but he also heard the crowd clearly. And they weren't going to be satisfied with anything less than Jesus' life. Verse 24 is where this conflict we've seen building throughout this chapter between the reality that Pilate saw clearly and the crowd clamoring for Jesus' death. It's where they meet. It's where they resolve. It says, so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. Barabbas, who had been found guilty of insurrection and murder, went free, and Jesus, who was not guilty of any crime, would meet the fate the crowd desired. He would be crucified at the hands of the Roman government at the request of the chief priests and the crowds. Pilate saw with clarity, but he behaved with, with cowardice. Let's be honest here, though. It's tempting in this story as we read it to paint Pilate as this uniquely cruel ruler who sentenced Jesus to death because that's just what evil men like Pilate do. And the historical evidence does suggest that Pilate was a cruel and ruthless man, but I think if we stop there this morning, then we might bypass some of the work that this passage might otherwise do in our hearts and in our lives this morning. If our takeaway this morning is don't be a ruthless governor, that's a good takeaway. You shouldn't be a ruthless governor, but most of us aren't even going to have the opportunity to test our resolve to live out that principle. There's more going on here in Luke's account. Verse 24 marks a turn in Pilate's thinking and his actions. The facts didn't change. No new evidence was presented. Pilate still knew that Jesus wasn't guilty, but he also knew what the crowd wanted. And the very same kind of insurrection that they were accusing Jesus of fomenting, one that would be a threat to Pilate's grip on power, felt very likely if this crowd didn't get their way. And so Pilate had a choice to make. He could rule based on the facts of the case and act according to what he believed, or he could protect his grip on power and preserve the status quo by giving them what they wanted. Essentially, Pilate wanted to have it both ways. He wanted to appear powerful and in control as the governor, but he also didn't want any trouble that came with being the one who made the hard choices. And so instead of making and taking a stand for what was right, he bent to the winds of public opinion. He valued the protection of his power and his position over his own integrity. And that, I think, is where each of us have to consider where we might be tempted to do the same.
None of us are the governor, but each of us have what Pilate had in this situation. We have the ability to see or to perceive what's going on around us. We have the ability to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false in accordance with God's word, and we have the ability to choose whether we're going to act according to our convictions or just go along with the crowd. We may not be the final sentencer like Pilate, but we all have some sphere of influence with our family, our friends, or our work where we can choose to act in accordance with our convictions or not. And it doesn't have to be a big show for everyone to see. Believe it or not, you can do the right thing without posting it on social media. You see, doing the right thing isn't about a performance. It's about walking in integrity, even if no one is around to see. That is with alignment between who you are and what you believe and how you live and how you speak. Integrity isn't performative. But what Pilate did here was he was playing the part the crowd wanted him to play even though he knew it wasn't right. If you're not sure that's what's going on here, then we can look at the Gospel of Matthew this morning where we're told that this performance ends this way in Matthew 27, 24. It says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Pilate saw with clarity, but behaved with cowardice. He knew what he should do, but he counted the cost, and he chose another way. And the truth is, there have been and there will be times when we do the same. It could be a situation with our family, our friends, our work. The possibilities really are endless. Maybe there's something you know you should say, but the fear of backlash and what it will cost keeps you quiet. Or like Pilate, maybe there's something you know you shouldn't do, but it's just easier to go along than to stand your ground. We're not talking here this morning about situations where it's difficult for us to discern what's right and what's wrong. Those are a different matter. Sometimes it isn't our place to say something in a given situation, or saying something in some situations isn't going to do any good. We can see Jesus here in this passage as one example. Sometimes it's not clear what we should do. Some situations really are complex to the point that it's hard for us to figure out what to do, and we wrestle with it, and we get advice, but we still are unsure. But that wasn't Pilate's situation here. He saw clearly what was going on, and he knew exactly what he needed to do. He said it three times before he did the opposite. And so I'm convinced this morning that this passage, it challenges us to just do the things that we know we should do. I mean, what a difference would it make in our lives if we just focused on following Jesus on, in the things that we know he wants us to do, the things we know he wants us to say. We can spend a lot of time worried and anxious about the more difficult or complex situations or every little detail about how our lives are going to play out. But if we just said what is true and walked in step with what the truth that we know, that would get us a long way down the road of following Christ. But sometimes, like Pilate, we're afraid of what will happen if we stand our ground while we fail to consider the toll of separating what we know to be true from how we live our lives. It doesn't seem like a big deal at first, but when we continue down that path, the cries of our conscience grow more and more distant until we're standing there like Pilate before the crowd, washing our hands and declaring our innocence and using others to justify the wrong we've done. Pilate saw with clarity, but behaved 
with cowardice. In that way, his story is a cautionary tale for all of us. It's a heart check where it is how we're living depart from what we know to be true and right and good. There's always some distance between those two for us, but growing in Christ-likeness is about those two things moving closer together, probably not all at once, but step by step as we follow Jesus. And that's because of who Jesus is and how he lived. Just consider this account that we looked at today and where we know it's leading. Pilate saw with clarity, but behaved with cowardice. But on the other hand, Jesus saw fully and acted fearlessly. It is clear from the way that Jesus responds first to the council, then to Pilate, then to Herod, that he understood exactly what was going on here. He knew what was about to happen, and he knew that arguing with people who weren't willing to listen wasn't going to get him anywhere. He saw the full picture of what was happening in the world and in his life. We know it as early as Luke chapter 9, verse 21 and 22, where he first predicts his death with these words, saying, and he strictly charged And commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Later in that same chapter, he would foretell his death again. And then in Luke chapter 18, verse 31, it says this, Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus saw fully. And there's a difference, I think, between seeing clearly and seeing fully. Because Pilate saw clearly. He understood what was happening before him. He saw through the game the chief priests and the elders were playing. He saw the innocence of Jesus. He saw the crowd demanding Jesus' crucifixion, but he didn't see the full picture because his view was blocked by the crowd before him. He couldn't see a future on the other side of him letting Jesus go or letting the crowd down. The bigger picture here we see is the one that Jesus is walking in, the one that he is living in. For Pilate, the fear of what would happen if he didn't satisfy the crowd blinded him to that bigger picture, and that's often what happens with us. The problem isn't that we don't see things clearly, it's that because of our perspective, we don't see the full picture. And when all we see are the risks before us of doing what's right, we find it hard to see a life on the other side of the pain and suffering that might come Fear clouds the hope that God offers us. But Jesus, even in the face of unimaginable suffering and shame, even death, he clung tightly to hope. In the verses we just read, Jesus would foretell his death, but then he would also foretell his resurrection. Jesus saw the full picture. He wasn't naive about the pain he would experience or the hope that was before him. And so he saw fully and he acted fearlessly. He didn't lash out at those who threatened his life. But he didn't dignify their process by engaging with it either. He told the truth about who he was and what he'd been sent to do. Acting fearlessly is not the same as acting foolishly. We can get those confused sometimes, determined to prove that we're not afraid. We run into danger without counting the cost or seeing the whole picture or thinking about the effect our words or actions might have. We speak harshly or act selfishly, hurting others who then hurt us in return. But acting fearlessly is not the same as acting foolishly. 
To act fearlessly is to act like Jesus acts. It is to act selflessly. That is the way of Jesus. That's the way of the cross. It's the way that we see Paul describing in Philippians 2 when he writes to the church at Philippi. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus saw fully and acted fearlessly. He didn't view his equality with God as something to be used for his own self-interest, but as something to be used for the good of others. He selflessly laid down his life for our sins. So the love Jesus displayed on the way to the cross calls us to trust him and to follow him, to align how we live in the world with what we see in him. It's a call to follow Jesus in selfless love rather than self-protecting fear. Because Jesus laid down his life on the cross, we know how to live. And like him, we can know that there is life on the other side of death, no matter how large it looms or how loud it cries. Pilate saw with clarity, but he behaved with cowardice. He was willing to set aside the facts of the case that Jesus had done nothing wrong in order to preserve the status quo for himself, in order to protect his political career. What will we do when we're tempted to do something similar? Will we take Pilate's path or will we follow the way of Jesus? So we ponder that question this morning, each of us have an opportunity to respond. A few ways we can do that this morning. First, there's a decision for each of us to make. And that is, will we go Pilate's way, living in fear of what others think, say, or do, driven only by the goal of self-preservation? Or will we go the way of Jesus, walking in love and putting the good of others before our own? If you're already a follower of Jesus this morning, that's a decision that you can make, a commitment that you can make to him again today, right where you are this morning. Or if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus before, then you can also make that commitment to him today, right where you are. But we would love to have an opportunity to talk with you and to pray with you about what that means to follow Jesus, to talk with you about following Jesus in baptism. If that's you this morning, if you need someone to pray with you for any reason this morning, then I'm going to be right here this morning as we sing um, these first couple of songs. I'll be right here as we sing the first one or right on the front row somewhere if we sing another one at any point this morning. If you need to talk or you need prayer, you can find me. We would love to talk and pray together with you. 
Second way we can respond, though, this morning is this. We're going to share the Lord's Supper together this morning as our praise team comes to lead us in this next song. It's something that Jesus commanded us to do together as his followers. It's something that reminds us of what he has done for us. And so as this song begins in a moment, you'll come forward to the table that's in front of your section, the four sections we have here. There's a table in front of each one. You'll exit your row to the right, circle back in on the other side. On the table in front of you, you'll find two cups stacked together. The bottom one contains the bread, which represents Jesus' body given for you, a symbol of the cost of sin and the boundless nature of his love. And the other cup contains juice, representing the blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Once you've gotten those cups, you can take those elements back to your seat and receive them as your heart is prepared to do so. And then third, this morning, we're all going to respond by singing together, by reflecting upon and celebrating God's love that he has shown to us. And so I'll pray for us this morning, and then we'll respond to what we see in Pilate, the sentencer, but even more than that this morning, we'll respond to what we see in Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you for for your love. that Jesus so powerfully displays and makes visible to us, Lord, through his life. Lord, as Pilate fell short, God, we know that we so often do as well. And we pray this morning that you would help us to to see where we fall short of what we know you've called us to do, Lord. We pray that you would help us to repent, to change our our thinking, to change our direction in in those moments, Lord. Lord, and help us to receive the the love that Jesus has for us, Lord. Love that led him to lay down his life. One who was guilty of no crime, not deserving of death, Lord. And yet we see him as one who who laid down his life for us, Lord. And so we thank you for the love that you show us in Jesus. We pray that you would help us to to walk in that love, Lord. Help us to make a decision today, God, to to follow the way of Jesus rather than the, the path of Pilate, Lord. If that's a decision that anyone here needs to make for the first time today, God, I pray that you would give them the the boldness, the courage to to make that choice, Lord. The, for each of us, Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to walk in that decision each day of this week, God. And we pray that as we take these elements together this morning, that you would remind us of your, your love for us, your grace poured out upon us. God, that we would be those who are 
are led to repentance by, by your kindness, Lord, by your mercy, by your grace. Pray these things together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.